Hey everyone, welcome back to the Period Chats podcast. Today we have a very educational episode with Lindley Wells, who is a licensed dietitian. We're going to be talking all about just kind of our favorite things we do as non-negotiables in our cyclical routines. And in the second half of the episode, we're going to be talking all about uterine fibroids, which Lindley has some personal experience with, but also professional experience that she can share If you're experiencing uterine fibroids, I highly recommend sticking around to the end of the episode. They're actually a pretty common thing that a lot of women and people with periods will deal with. So having that education could be very beneficial to you or a friend who's listening. But without further ado, Lindley, will you introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about you before we jump into the episode? For sure. Um, Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So yes, I'm a licensed dietitian nutritionist through the state of Massachusetts, and I'm also a certified nutrition specialist. So my background, um, I went to um, Maryland University of Integrative Health and got my master's there in nutrition and integrative health. And before that, kind of my undergrad was in environmental policy. So I was very interested in kind of like the macro level of food, so understanding um, regulation around food, agricultural policy, you know, pesticides, herbicides, all that was very interesting to me. Um, and also the differences between European regulation versus regulation in the United States, which I'm sure um, you know a lot about in terms of food, but there's a lot of differences. So um, that's kind of where my interest in food started. And then I kind of wanted to get a little bit more um, granular and take a little more of a micro view and really understand kind of food specifically for people, what's happening in the body, and just how therapeutic food can be um, in relation to many conditions, especially hormonal conditions. There's a lot of things um, nutrition-wise we can do. Um, So that's kind of me in a nutshell. I work in a clinical setting um, part of the time, and then I also contract for a variety of companies and work with um, their employees on all things nutrition and just, you know, lifestyle interventions. I love seeing this new age of dietitians who are really, um, and licensed nutritionists who are really branching out and not just going like the standard clinical route, which is an amazing route to go. And it's an incredibly difficult route, but I think it's really cool to see the entrepreneurial side of food and like what we can do with food. I did want to touch really quick before we jump in. A lot of people don't know that what's allowed in the US is oftentimes banned in Europe. And actually for Funkit, we follow the European guidelines. So we won't use anything in our products that's banned in Europe. So could you talk a little bit more about that just before we jump in? Sure. So in relation to food, actually, what really was interesting to me when I was in college was specifically um, regulation of artificial dyes in food. So I was very interested. I always kind of... um, thought I would go kind of into food legislation related to like schools and kind of how um, foods that kids are eating in school settings or even snacks, how that was kind of regulated. And so I was really fascinated by what the U.S. allowed in food products and what the EU allowed in food products. And so what I found was there's a lot of companies like Nutrigrain is one that's kind of in my memory, even though this was a long time ago, um, where they make two the the exact same product, but they make two distinctly different versions. So one with coloring from like beets and carrots that's for the European Union and sold there because artificial colors are not allowed in the EU. And then they made another version for, you know, purchase and selling in the US, which was, you know, artificial, you know, red dye number one, yellow one and three, all that. So um, the EU is much more stringent in terms of testing 
and you obviously know a lot more about this than I do probably, but testing, labeling. So if there's something in the food that could potentially cause cancer or hyperactivity in kids, they have to put a really big note on it, like, you know, warning, this could cause X, Y, and Z. And so there's just a, a huge difference in terms of, I think, the um, the testing in the EU versus the U.S., the labeling, and just also the quality of the product's shoes. I also think it's really interesting. A lot of times people who have issues with gluten or wheat and, and dairy in the U.S., they go to Europe and they don't have the same issues because we kind of, like in the U.S., a lot of people call it Franken-wheat. Like we have this just wheat that's been so hybridized and is so far from what it used to be grown as. And, and in the European Union, they have a little bit um, more stringent rules around just everything related to agriculture, food labeling, what goes in products, and even like topical products. So, you know, what's in our cleaning products, our shampoos, our conditioners, our nail polish, all that. There's so many things that are banned in the EU, but that we allow in the US. So it's, it's the wild west out there. <laughs> it is. And if you guys are interested in that, we're having a toxicologist come on our podcast in a few weeks. That's going to really dig into like why those chemicals and why those dyes and why those things matter. But thank you for jumping into that because I think it's an important point that a lot of people don't know is that the regulatory system is very different between the U.S. and Europe. And if you're ever curious, you can go online and see the differences. So I recommend doing that. But we're going to go ahead and jump in to cyclical routines because I want to make sure we get plenty of time for uterine fibroids. So where are you in your cycle right now? I have my period right now, right as we're having this talk. So there we go. Um, very timely. Um, so I'm, you know, I think during my period and lead, leading up to my period is probably when I'm most focused on kind of self-care just because I always notice in myself that I'm a little bit more tired. I just need to kind of rest, relax, um, really kind of prioritize my self-care. So some of the kind of non-negotiables for me um, around my period are always hydration. Like I often will get headaches if I don't really prioritize hydration. And I think we don't realize that we're we're more prone to dehydration when we have our period, which makes sense you're losing blood and fluids. So um, I always make sure I use electrolytes um, kind of leading up to and during kind of throughout my cycle. I found that's really helped prevent uh, a lot of headaches that I was getting. Um, and I think they were really related to dehydration. So that's a big one. And I either kind of pour a pre-made one in my water or you can make one like you can just do salt and baking soda and a little bit of citrus. And that's a great little kind of DIY electrolyte mix at home. Um, sleep is a huge thing that I prioritize. And um, I just always find myself drawn to like get in bed earlier. So like last night I was in bed at 930 and I slept a full eight and a half hours and just was like, oh, I really needed that. Um, so those are two really big things. I also, um, I'm always drawn to warmer and cooked food kind of leading up to and during my cycle. And that's something that um, my acupuncturist, which is something I also do for kind of cyclical care, um, she mentioned it to me years ago. Like if you want to eat raw food, make sure you you don't, you try to move away from that or cold foods like smoothies and stuff. Try to not have those leading up to and during your period because you're kind of already um, colder. I think in Eastern medicine, that's kind of the the blood loss makes the body colder. And so I, I try to have more like soups and stews or just warmer things leading up to my period during my period and then kind of more raw stuff, you know, the first, the uh, after my period. So those are kind of the big ones that I do. Um, obviously, seeds, I've gotten, thanks to you, uh, into seed cycling. I had always, um, for many, many years, have had flaxseed um, daily. 
Um, it's just kind of, as you know, an amazing seed, just like an kind of, it's like an adaptogen almost like it helps you if you need more estrogen and it kind of promotes the, the coolest thing ever. Phytoestrogens are like the cool, like when I learned about those as a dietitian, I was like, wait a minute, food is amazing. Mind blowing. And, um, yeah, making sure they're ground, it like drives me nuts when people like think that you can eat them whole and like, well, you're not really getting the benefits and you're just going to poop it right out. So make sure. It's I always tell everyone, think about if you've ever seen bird poop because birds eat lots of things with seeds. And when birds poop, they're spreading new seeds for new plants to be grown. And it's because the seed is just literally goes right through them and then grows in the ground. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah, like a lot of people like are big on like the flacker crackers. And I'm kind of like, I wish they would grind the flax seeds a little more because they're just the straight up seeds. So you really have to chew them. But um, so yeah, so seeds, I mean, so rich in zinc and selenium and omega-3s and and so many minerals that we need um, for health periods. So those are kind of my big things. I mean, I always kind of have my like um, things on the side in case I need them. So like heating pad, taking warm baths, topical magnesium, you know, if kind of cramping is a little uncomfortable. Um, I've done a complete overhaul of all of my um, tampons, pads, cleaning products. So shameless plug for good, clean love, which has amazing, um, cleaning products, wipes, lubes, totally life-changing. I had a period of time where I was pinging and ponging back between yeast imbalance and BV and switched up kind of my cleaning products and it just made everything better. So those are great. Botanica has great, um, suppositories if you kind of just have that uncomfortable you know like itchy feeling before periods they're a great women-owned company um so just i always like to have things in my kind of like toolkit in case i need them um and i think a lot of things that um i think we often don't think about that the vaginal microbiome is important to kind of consider and when gut health is off and when stress is off, everything's so interconnected. So just um, being cognizant of how to like really take care of our vaginal microbiome just as we would our gut and all those obviously are totally interrelated to hormones. So it's like this one big circle that all of all the cogs need to be working correctly for the wheel to be turning. Yes. And it is like such a puzzle piece. And, you know, with the BV piece, especially like I get, I used to get really irritated before my period would start. I would just feel like I wanted to like almost crawl out of my skin. And it's interesting that switching your lube to a pH balanced, like microbiome friendly lube, that totally fixed it for me. Like that was my problem. And I was like, wow, this, and I love good clean love. I worked at a past company that like used to work with them and I just think they're such an incredible company. I'm not affiliated at all with them, but they're so cool. Yeah, they're awesome. They're totally great. And yeah, what you're saying, like just the subtle changes, like for me, it was actually just stress that was kind of triggering these kind of what was what I was perceiving as kind of an issue with yeast or BV, which when they'd swab me, sometimes I would have it, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and it really kind of... Um, it forced me to look at like my stress levels and just like really kind of calming down and relaxing. And also kind of my relationship with these kind of like when you go to the OB guy and you get swabbed, I always correct people when they say um, yeast infection because it's not an infection, it's an imbalance. So we have yeast in our vaginal, you know, in our microbiome, in our vagina. That's 
meant to be there. We just don't want too much of it. So when it gets kind of out of control, that's when we get all the uncomfortable symptoms. But what I love is just having the tools that if I do feel like things are getting out of whack, I don't need to go to the gynecologist every single time. Like I kind of know, all right, I need to rest, calm down, maybe use some of my suppositories, maybe take some probiotics. There's some great ones on the market that are specific strains for women. Um, So yeah, it's just good to kind of always be building your toolkit. I think building your toolkit is such an empowering move too, because just like you said, like you get to know your body, you learn to tune in and then it's not a panic every time something is slightly off. It's like, okay, I know my body. I've been listening. I know a few things to try. And then if those things don't work, of course, like call your gyno, go to your gyno, but it's empowering to know your body more. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a reason why we call it like the fifth vital sign. Like we, if we actually listen to what our body's telling us, it's right 100% of the time. We just sometimes keep going on with our life without stopping listening. And it, I think so much of the time, it's just if we really stopped and kind of took assessment of, okay, what is my body telling me? It's like, okay, I need to make some changes, whether it's long down, sleeping more, changing food habits, um, you know, the list goes on and on. On and on. Okay. I know you have a personal background with uterine fibroids that you mentioned to me. Would you mind going into just like a little bit of personal background? Because we're definitely going to get into the more like, here's what they are. You know, here's the treatments. Here's different things to do for them. But I also think that a lot of people sometimes have fibroids and don't even know for a long time. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing that personal experience, I think it would be super beneficial for everyone listening. Yeah, totally. I would love to. And and like you described, so um, I've had two surgeries to remove uterine fibroids. And the first um, the first time it took probably eight or nine months for them to figure out what was going on, which in hindsight, kind of knowing what I know now, you know, it would have never taken that long. But um, I was very young. Um, I really believed that the fibroids started growing as soon as I got my period. So I got my period around 12 or 13. And I truly believe given the size that they were when I got kind of the diagnosis that they had both been growing since I got my period. So I got the diagnosis when I was 17. Um, And what really kind of prompted it was just these really heavy periods, really long periods. And I would um, bleed really big blood clots. And I just, I was young and I didn't honestly know that much about my period or my cycle. I never learned about it in health class. You know, no fault of my mom. She never really talked to me about it that much. You know, she got me like a book and, you know, kind of, you know, explained to me how tampons and pads work. But beyond that, it was very kind of basic, like um, no discussion around like what's normal, what's not normal, you know. Um, But I started just feeling really tired and not well. And just it made life really difficult when I would have my period. I I would miss a lot of school because you know, I'd put in a tampon and I'd have to change it within 30 minutes. And I just was really, you know, at that age, you're kind of embarrassed and you don't want to like be at school and have blood on your pants. And um, so we just started seeing doctors and I started with my primary care, didn't really know what was going on. And her um, only suggestion was really birth control or going to see a specialist. So they put me on birth control and that made everything significantly worse. So I went off that after about probably two months and then saw a specialist and um, they were kind of like, we don't really know what's going on. We're not really sure what it is. So we're going to send you to another specialist, kind of a pediatric, um, 
I don't even know what the exact name was, but basically a pediatric doctor who specialized in kind of all things related to the uterus. So I went went to see them, and I um, at this time was living in rural Massachusetts. So I went all the way to Boston Children's Hospital, got an MRI, and um, even at that doctor, he still was like, we're going to send you to one other doctor um, to kind of look at these results. And so I think it was four doctors I finally got the diagnosis of uterine fibroid. And my suspicion is why it took so long is because it's very uncommon to have a uterine fibroid of that size in someone that age. Um, fun tidbit, I am in medical journals because they had never seen one that big in someone that young. So I don't know where it is, but that's what my doctor told me. Um, so it was about the size of a six-month-old fetus. So I started to actually look pregnant um, and and... So that was kind of at the point where, all right, there's something really off here. And they basically gave the diagnosis of a fibroid. And my first fibroid was grown inside my uterus. The second one was grown externally, like off, off my fibroid, which is called the pedunculated fibroid. So it almost was like a tree limb is kind of how it's described to me. So they can grow in all different ways. Um, and so the experience between my first and second surgery was drastically different. Like by the time kind of the second one rolled around, I kind of was like, all right, I kind of know what I'm into and what I'm in for. But still, the the surgical process and the recovery was very, very different, um, which is one of the big things I would say to people is even if you've had a surgery once, don't expect that it's going to be the same. Um, I thought it was, you know, I was all prepared and it was a completely different recovery and surgery. So that's kind of a little bit about my background with the uterine fibroids. Um, my goal is that those are hopefully my only two surgeries to remove them. Um, but we'll see. So, okay. We have a lot to unpack there. That and 17 is really young. Like you're just kind of getting, com not even really getting comfortable with your body and then having to navigate something else. You know, what was that like as a 17 year old? It was definitely uncomfortable. I mean, I definitely, I was lucky in the sense of I had really supportive parents, really supportive teachers. Everybody kind of knew if I had to get up and kind of leave the room, just I didn't have to ask permission. Um, you know, I, I was a day student at a boarding school, so my friends let me keep like extra pants and, you know, underwear in their room so I could go change. But it was hard. You know, I think it was really hard because there was such a long period of time where we didn't really know what was going on. Um, and that's what made it difficult. And also I had to kind of relinquish um, a lot of things that I um, was really excited about doing. Like I, I had to not play tennis my senior year and I, you know, couldn't sit for my AP exams that I kind of studied all year for because I just, it was too uncomfortable to sit for that long. And we didn't know when my period was going to fall. And um, so it was definitely tricky to navigate. And I think in hindsight, I wish I had just known more about just my period and my cycle in general. But also just um, I didn't have a lot of um, people around me who kind of knew a lot about fibroids. My dad was actually the one who really started kind of like Googling at a certain point and was like, I think you have fibroids. And so he actually figured it out before any of the doctors. Um, so, you know, always make sure you have kind of a, a team or an advocate who's kind of helping you purse through things, especially if you're a kid. You know, obviously the second time around I was an adult, so I could really advocate for myself and and knew a lot of the questions to ask or, or even kind of the testing to almost demand that um, get done. But but it definitely was hard to navigate um, as a young person. It's not common for fibroids in that age. It's much more of a kind of 40s, 50s. Um, that's usually when they're kind of more prevalent and problematic in women. But um, yeah, it was definitely tricky. Yeah, that makes me want to give 17-year-old you like a big hug because those things are like 
at 17, you know, playing tennis and sitting for AP exams, like there are definitely things that you would have to grieve not being able to do. Yeah. Yep. And I think even, you know, later on in life, women deal with missed work, not wanting to go out and do social things. I mean, the second time around, there were lots of things that I missed because, you know, just I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I, I was in too much pain or I was too worried that I was going to kind of bleed and, and I didn't want to be in public. Um, so I think no matter what age, there's a lot of sacrifices that women with fibroids are making either out of pain, out of kind of fear of what's going to happen, out of the unknown, out of kind of just excess bleeding. So, um, yeah, I had, I had a lot of black pants in my, in my wardrobe. <laughs> and I think that's something we don't talk about enough is like what's missed sometimes because of dealing with these issues, because there's already this like stigma around talking about period health and then let alone like saying, oh, I can't come or I can't do because of these things. So thank you for talking about it on the podcast, because I think it helps other people feel more comfortable and confident to like advocate and navigate these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hope also even like if there's any people who run businesses listening to this, like that you understand that sometimes people need to miss work because of things related to their period or hormonal conditions. And I think there's not there's a lot of stigma around saying like, oh, I can't come into work today because I'm having debilitating cramps. That's very different from, oh, I can't come in because I'm vomiting or I have a really bad cold or I have COVID or, you know, there's certain things that are more accepted as to reasons why you're missing something or, you know, societally appropriate excuses. And I think it's really important that we all start having the conversations around, you know, um, a lot of issues that women have that prevent them from doing the work that we want to do or the social things that we want to do. Amen. Okay. We're going to do some rapid fire questions to get some more information on fibroids. So what is a fibroid? A fibroid is a non-cancerous, so a benign growth in your uterus. So um, it can either be in the uterus, as I said, it can kind of be attached and growing in the uterine wall, either internally or externally. Um, and it can vary in size. The kind of medical term is lyomyoma or myoma. Um, and they vary in size from like the size of a pea to like a cantaloupe or like a, you know, soccer ball. So they can, they really range in size, which is kind of what is uh, remarkable about them. And and because they vary in size, for some women, they have them and they're so small that they really don't impact them at all or they're just not really a problem. Obviously, when they get to be a certain size, that's when you, you have an issue. Okay. And so you kind of already touched on this too, but what are some common symptoms of fibroids or things that people should pay attention to? Sure. Good question. Um, I think another tricky thing about fibroids is they can present in a lot of different ways. So like my presentations, when I had them the first time, were completely different from the second time. So okay. um, for a lot of women, heavy periods, blood clotting. So when you're, you're urinating, you're peeking out a lot of big clots, pelvic pain, back pain. That was a big one for me. I just was always kind of like holding my back and get really tired. Pain with sex, um, anemia, that can be a big one. Um, those are kind of the common ones, really bad cramping, um, GI distress. So that was with the second one. Um, my fibroid was so big that it was actually pushing on my kind of like colon and large intestine. So it made going poop more difficult. So it can really, sometimes the size of them can be so big that it's actually like pushing into other organs. Um, so you can kind of have some like abdominal discomfort, look bloated or pregnant, but there's a lot of different presentations of it. So that's where sometimes it can be tricky. Like a lot of people like, oh, I have heavy periods and it's kind of like, 
okay, well, that could be a lot of things. And, you know, fibroids being one of them. So those are some of the common symptoms, I would say. Okay. And then you mentioned this. So yours was diagnosed, was it through an MRI or ultrasound? So good question. So kind of the gold standard of diagnosis is an MRI because you want to see how big, you want to get the very specific dimensions, but you also want to see the blood flow, which is very important when they're kind of deciding surgical wise. Um, So that's kind of the gold standard. And usually if um, surgery is kind of the end point, they're going to require an MRI because um, like for someone like me, I wanted to preserve my ovaries and uterus. And so they wanted to see in what proximity they were to my ovaries. They wanted to see the source of blood. Um, So MRI is the gold standard. Most people, I would say, usually the best starting point is like an ultrasound because you don't really want to put yourself through an MRI unnecessarily, which you absolutely have to do it um, because it's just not a fun thing to do, especially if you're claustrophobic. Um, So MRI and then a lot of blood testing can be done. So looking at hormones, do kind of a full hormone panel. And then oftentimes a full iron panel. So if you're suspecting anemia, which I was very anemic the first, um, before the first surgery, I wasn't at all. The second one, I wasn't, I didn't have really heavy periods for the second one because I think a lot of it was the positioning of the fibroid. So the first fibroid was grown inside my uterus. The second one was attached, kind of, like I said, a tree limb kind of attached to my uterus on the outside. So interesting how the placement can have such different presentation and like different symptoms. And now I can see why it may be tricky to diagnose because they can all present so differently. Yep, exactly. Like the first go around really heavy periods, a lot of pelvic pain, a lot of irregular periods. The second time around, it was a lot more um, abdominal pain, a lot of difficulty going to the bathroom, a lot of frequent urination. That's another big one that can be kind of a symptom. And depending on the size of it, if you know, for all for any listeners out there who have been pregnant, you know, when you have something growing inside of you, it's pushing on your bladder. So fibroids are no different. And that is a big um, thing that I dealt with kind of both times around was just peeing all the time because there was something kind of just extra pushing down on my bladder. Goodness, so many different things to think about. And you mentioned this too. So is surgery the only treatment option? Surgery is not the only treatment option. So a lot of times if they find them on an ultrasound or, um, you know, they kind of are aware that they're there, you can kind of wait and see for some, in some instances, the fibroids won't continue to grow or, or will grow at such a slow pace that they're, you know, you can kind of wait and see what happens. There are um, kind of, there is some research being done seeing into, you know, what you can do supplementally with shrinking the size of the fibroids. So there's some research that's come out around um, the ext- an extract in green tea, so ECGC, um, and utilizing that at a certain dosage to kind of shrink them. That's kind of, I'd say, kind of on the newer cutting edge side of things. Um, Surgery, once the fibroids are at a certain size, generally surgery is the primary point of intervention. You know, they're certainly intervening with birth control, with other kind of um, oral um, medications. There's something called endometrial ablation, um, where they kind of, you know, break it up and kind of cut it out and remove it. Um, So there's a lot of options. It really is up to kind of you personally, your kind of reproductive needs or desires, you know, obviously you're going to probably make a very different decision if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s versus kind of 50s, 60s. Um, But it's something you definitely would want to think about in terms of reproduction, kind of your life, and then talk with your doctor. But there definitely are options. Um, For me, it just ended up being 
surgery was the route I had to take because of the size and also just wanting to preserve my uterus and ovaries in case I do want to have kids someday. Okay, that leads me perfect into my next question because that's what I've been thinking this whole time is can fibroids impact fertility? So they can. Um, you know, I'm, I've kind of monitored my hormones for years and kind of wanting to be aware of that component of it. So kind of the like lab component, but also the structural component. So given the size of my um, fibroids, I couldn't have carried a baby to term like with the fibroids. So once they're at a certain size and if you want to be pregnant, that's where kind of the removal often comes in. There are certainly women who have carried a baby to term and had fibroids. Um, you know, one of my surgeons said, yeah, a lot of times when we do C-sections, we take the baby out and we also remove a bunch of fibroids um, that we see in there. So um, it can affect fertility. I think it's really individual. So for me, I've been lucky. I've um, been, you know, keeping an eye on my blood work and kind of hormonally, my levels are good and my uterus lining is thick enough to kind of hold the baby. Um, for me, because of the surgery that I had, I have to have a C-section. So for some women, that is kind of a route that they may have to go, given the kind of type of incision that's done, the depth of it, and kind of the location. Um, that often can lead to kind of um, having to have a C-section. But I would say most women, they're, they're usually hopefully is an option that if that, you know, wanting to have a baby is in their, in, in their kind of hopes and dreams that hopefully that can happen. But I think it's a combination of labs and then, you know, making sure either the fibroids are small enough that your doctor can carry the baby to full term or having it removed and then giving yourself time to recover before you try to get pregnant. You're so knowledgeable on all the options, which is so incredible, I think, for people to hear. Because I think a lot of times we're told there's one option, there's one way to do things, and if you don't do it this way. So it's really refreshing to hear that you know so many of the different options people can take if they have fibroids. Yes, there are a lot of options. There's also, I want to say, there is some more research and funding being devoted to fibroids. So um, Vice President Kamala Harris has been a big proponent of all things fibroids and um, introduced legislation back in 2020. And then um, additional legislation was introduced in 2021. And uh, it's funding totally related to the study of uterine fibroids. Um, right now in the U.S., 26 million women are impacted by fibroids. The majority of women will have fibroids throughout their life, whether they're big enough to impact them or whether they know they have them. So they're a real, um, they're a real issue, and we need to really devote some funding to really understanding more about the etiology. There, you know, we do know some things about kind of what makes people potentially have them that makes someone more likely than others. So, women who are deficient in vitamin D, which is something I've always been deficient in, are at a higher. So many people are. So many people. Um, so they're at a higher predisposition. Um, sometimes familial history, um, obesity, exposure to endocrine disruptors, which sadly we all are exposed to so many of them all the time now. Um, but we still need, we have a lot of work to do in terms of really understanding more about the etiology of them and why really the majority of women are getting them um, and why they're getting to the point where they could be so debilitating and so problematic for women. Um, and another important thing to note is that African-American women are at a two or three times higher rate of getting them. So um, that's also something that I think is important, important to discuss. But there is definitely like legislation out there and focus on it. And um, very cool that our vice president is. That's one of her areas where she's definitely supporting. So hopefully we learn more in the years to come. 
Yeah, that's, I love the ending on the hopeful note of that things are being done and that we can learn more to understand this. And I was going to, I was about to Google when you mentioned it, I was under the impression most women at some point, or if you have a period, are going to deal <clears throat> with uterine fibroids. So it really is something that eventually will impact most people and you'll at least know someone who's experiencing it. So this episode is really probably valuable for anyone who knows anyone with a period. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. And my mom, even though she was never like formally diagnosed with them, she said, you know, towards the end of my period, I feel like I was kind of like peeing these really big clots. And she's like, I really wonder if I had fibroids. And then she said, you know, your grandma kind of had a similar thing. So, you know, for me, there could be a familial kind of predisposition to them. But yeah, as you're saying, I mean, they're it really, it's very common in women. And so really, I'm curious what the research will show in terms of kind of what's leading to just the the prevalence of them. You know, my suspicion is a lot of exposure to endocrine disruptors that are kind of mimic estrogen. Um, you know, estrogen is one of the big things that's discussed kind of in the fibroid space. Um, I think there also needs to be a lot of discussion around progesterone because I think so much of my journey was focusing on, I have too much estrogen. I need to make sure I'm, you know, eliminating it and, and detoxing it and getting it out but I also think that my progesterone has been a little bit low my whole life. And so kind of bolstering that up to kind of be more in a healthy balance. And that's really, as you know, what hormones are all about is it's like, it has to be a balance. There's too much of something. There's not enough of something. We, we want them to be in harmony as much as possible. So my suspicion is, and it's just me personally, that that is a big factor in fibroids. I would say your suspicion is definitely worth exploring because hormones influence so much in our body, especially when it comes to reproductive health and uterine health. And so I think that that is a very likely suspicion. I mean, our hormones, I always tell people are like a relay race. You want the baton to be handed off seamlessly. We're having dropping of the baton. That's when things are getting held up and our hormones aren't able to function all the way through. And so I think that's a pretty good theory. Mm -hmm. I love that. Also, can we give... Yeah, I'm an I'm an like a analogy person. I've got to be able to like see it. Love it. Also, can we give a shout out to your supportive dad who was researching uterine fibroids? Yes, my supportive dad, my supportive mom, my supportive fiance the second time around. I mean, I'm very lucky that I've had such a supportive kind of group of people around me. Um, and I also have learned how to be my own advocate. So it's very hard in a medical setting. A lot of times doctors will say, no, we don't want to do that test or we don't think we need to go down that route. And um, it, it, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I have been right 100% of the time when I've asked for something in a medical setting. My hunch has always been accurate. So you're your own best advocate. You're your own best doctor. You know yourself better than anybody. So do not be afraid to advocate for yourself. And if that's something that's hard for you to do, bring somebody along that can do that. So, you know, I've gone with like my parents to help. I'm the advocate for them because maybe they're uncomfortable in that setting to say, well, I, you know, I want to do this. Or I want to try that. Bring somebody along, whether it's a friend, a parent, a work colleague, someone who's in the medical setting. That's really, really important. Just often get the testing that you need, the diagnosis you need, the support you need. So yes, cheers to my dad, my mom, my sisters, my fiance, all my friends and family who have been really supportive because it, it's 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 hard. Any surgery or anything you have to go through like that is difficult. You need a group of people around you to support you. So thank yes. you for giving them the shout out. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm just so happy and so grateful that you came on here and shared your story. I think I think hearing other people's stories, at least for me, is just one of those ways that I really can understand a problem and 
visualize and understand the symptoms and understand what to look for. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that story with us today. You're so welcome. And if you guys, if anybody out there wants to learn more about fibroids, I am, I work with or volunteer for a wonderful organization called the Fibroid Fibroid Foundation. And so they're the leaders in getting advocacy, legislation, um, information out there about fibroids and just women's health in general. So um, they're a wonderful resource. I just wanted to share that if anyone wants to learn more. That's incredible. We'll make sure to link it in the show notes. Is there, um, how can everyone find you? So we're closing up now. So how can everyone find you if they want to reach out, if they want to know more, if they want to connect with you, is there a way? Sure. So best place probably to reach me. And if you want to work with me, I work in a clinic called Dr. Lana Wellness. So you can go to our website, drlanawellness.com or on Instagram or on TikTok. Um, that's where I'm I'm there most of the time, you know, uh, we share recipes, we share information. Um, we just launched a cookbook for women with PCOS. So you can purchase it there. And we're working on some exciting new ones. Um, blood sugar balance, coming off the pill, fibroids, all things PMS. So we're, we're very like you. I, you know, I take a food first approach and I think that's very empowering to know that we can all just go to the grocery store and make choices that positively impact her body. So Dr. Lana Wellness is probably the best place to find me. Well, thank you for coming on. And for everyone listening, you know, share this episode with someone you love and you care about because fibroids will affect most of us at some point if we have a period and odds are you're going to know someone with a fibroid. So knowing those signs and symptoms up front, understanding it can really help you either advocate for yourself or be an ally for someone who's experiencing this. So thank you all for listening and I hope you have a beautiful day. And if any questions, you can reach out to us and let us know. For sure. Thanks, Kate.